This evening we continue in our study with Paul's first letter to young Timothy. Timothy chapter, um, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter number 2 this evening. And we're going to kind of go through a few of these verses together. When I was in Bible college over at Northland, one of my teachers told us of a book called Trembling at the Threshold of a Biblical Text. And um, that describes my approach this evening to our text for the teaching of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And it's polarizing as well as paralyzing, to say the least, in our culture today. And um, as I was planning this out this afternoon, I was thinking, boy, the Lord is so gracious to have me preach this text on, on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. Right? Surely these people can't get angry with me. I'm thankful for God's Word. That is, I say it all the time, rock solid and reliable. His Word is truth. His Word is truth, and even if it isn't popular, right? Even if it's not the thing to do in the culture, God's Word is always right. It's always right. We know that Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Pastor Timothy was so that the Ephesian church would know how they ought to conduct themselves. And we've talked about that for a number of weeks now. Now. But he wrote it so they would know how to conduct themselves in the house of God. Chapter 3 and verse 15. So that toward that end, Paul addressed the women of the church. Now, when considering the role of of women in our culture, there are two extremes that can be found. The one extreme we call the no-difference position. I'm talking about our culture now. The no-difference position. The no-difference position way is this. Men and women are the same. There's no difference between the two. Women should be allowed every role of combat and military, and they should be allowed to do every single thing the man can do. Women or girls should be allowed to be Boy Scouts. Obviously, women wouldn't be Boy Scouts, but girls, right? And we see that cross now, the different Scouts programs. Women should be able to play men's sports. They should be able to compete at the same level. They should be able to play in golf tournaments together. And I say that, and I don't play in any golf tournaments, but I know if a woman played against me, she would beat me hands down. Right, Ron? (laughs) They're great golfers. But their point is that we are on the complete same level. There is no difference. But then on the other hand, there is the equal and opposite position called the male-dominant position. The male-dominant position is a a male-superiority position. They view women as kind of just mousy creatures and can only be seen and not heard. And men have the license to suppress women. This would be the male-domination um, position that we see in culture in our culture today. It reminds me of the men whose wife had asked him to wash the dishes following dinner one night. The man argued. 
Dishes are not a man's job, he told his wife. Oh yeah, the wife replied. 2 Kings 21, verse 13, she said. Write it down, ladies. 2 Kings 21, verse 13, it says this. I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish. <laughs> Wiping it and turning it upside down. 2 Kings 21, 13. This evening we're going to consider God's really role for women in the church. 1 Timothy chapter number 2 begins in verse, or we're going to begin in verse 9. It says, likewise also, just as Paul exhorted men first of all in verse 1, and just as Paul expressed his desire for the men in verse 8, now he turns his attention to the women. It says, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, if you're taking notes this evening, our first point in the text is the, the conscience, or not the conscience, but the countenance, I should say, the countenance of the clothing of Christian women. Now, the word adorn in verse number nine is the word cosmeto, the Greek word cosmeto, from which we find our, our English word cosmetic. It means to change or to put into order. This is to be done in the wearing of modest apparel, verse number 9. The word modest is the objective cosmeto, which like the verb cosmeto means order. It means order. So this could literally, literally read verse 9, order yourself with orderly apparel. The countenance and the clothing of the cosmetics, if you will, of a Christian woman should be orderly arranged. Well, how so? Is it a matter of ironing a garment smooth? How many of you still iron? Anyone in here still iron? The laugh. I, somebody asked Vivian. Vivian mentioned she had to go iron, and somebody said, you still iron? Yeah, well, everything's wrinkle-free now, right? Everything's wrinkle-free. Not everything. Not everything. So what does it mean? Is it, is it a matter of ironing a garment smooth? Is it a matter of tailoring a garment to the right fit? Is it a matter of, of making the, the, the colors match? You don't want to, I, I cannot match anything. I don't know anything about it. I'll be transparent right now, um, which I always am, but my wife picks out my Sunday clothes. So just so you know, I cannot, I'll pick something out. And she's like, yeah, that tie doesn't go or that doesn't work. Um, but is that, what they're, is that what they're getting at here? Making sure everything matches? Paul gives some specifics in the latter part of the verse, number 9, but with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing. Remember the culture at this time. Let me pause right now and just remind you of the culture back then. So as we, in our culture right now, look at this, this text, we're saying, what in the world? Right? So I can't braid my hair. I can't wear gold. I can't wear any jewelry. Come on. Well, let's take a step back and remember what the culture was like. So ones that would wear this stuff in that culture did not reflect a lifestyle that glorified the Lord. Okay? So that's what Paul's aiming at here, a lifestyle that, that, that didn't glorify the Lord. Now, ladies, it is certainly appropriate to look presentable. Amen? 
I think all, all of you want to look presentable, right? You do. And uh, we're thankful for that. Just like guys, you know, run a brush through your hair, right? Look presentable before you, you leave the house. But it is certainly appropriate to look presentable. And others appreciate the care that you take in preparing yourself. You know, a little hairspray, a little makeup, necklace, whatever you do. I don't know. I'm, I, I just see what happens in our home. And I do have fear and trembling because I've got two younger ones that will get to that point where they're doing the same at, at, some, to, at some point. By all means, there is no virtue in neglecting your appearance. However, understand that the modesty of your physical appearance, your countenance, your clothing, your cosmetics, if you will, is important as a Christian woman in the church. You say, Pastor Craig, that is legalistic. God doesn't even, even look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart, you might be saying. I say, well, okay. I get that, but here's the thing. People look at the outward appearance. They see. For instance, there is the, the curb appeal of your house, right? You want to take, take good care of your house, keep it up. You don't want your weeds to grow. I say weeds because I got, you know, I cut my weeds. Everyone says, I got to cut the grass. Well, I, I cut the weeds, you know, I mow the weeds. But you got that curb appeal of the house. What about your vehicles? You take care of your vehicles. You wash them, you wax them, you take care of them. There's the clothing that we wear. So much that today we place the name brands on the outside of the clothing, right? They're not on the tags anymore. Well, they're on the tags still, but now they're on the outside of the clothing. I remember in high school, and Mr. Ometti alluded to this this morning, uh, my dress. And back then, the, the big thing was Tommy Hilfiger, that was the brand that was that was the brand that you had to have. Everyone had to have it. If you didn't have it, you were nobody. And uh, of course, everyone had it. And you know, in high school, my parents said, "You, if you want it, you buy it. You go ahead and save your money and buy it." And that summer, I cut grass and I bought a, a sweatshirt that fall, and it had their logo right on the front, like huge, right on the front. Everyone knew. It's crazy. We now wear the, the tags on the outside to let everyone know. You see, our countenance and our clothing communicates an identity and an activity. And I believe that principle that Paul here is asserting to here is that what is visible on the outside communicates the values of our inside, the heart. Really communicates our, our heart. Now, you're going to come up to me and say, so I can't wear anything with name? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that. Sometimes that's all they have is the names on the outside of the clothing. But it communicates the heart. So first in verse 9, Paul is addressing the countenance or the clothing and the cosmetics of a Christian woman. Secondly, the character of a Christian woman. Embodied in verse number 9 are, are two qualifying characteristics that should be found in Christian women. The ESV reads, with modesty and self-control. These describe the attitude that is behind, behind the attire. Number one, the attire of Christian women. Number two, the attitude of Christian women. And ladies, I would ask that you think of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. It says, do not let your adorning be external, 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Your beauty, Christian women, is not in your complexion. Your beauty is not in your clothing, but rather it is in your Christian character, your attitude, your spirit. We're teaching this right now to two young girls, very young girls. But at the age of six years old, we hear questions like, am I beautiful? At six. Of course, they're beautiful, right? But where did that come from? Where it came from somewhere, right? Society. Our own view is so off in this area as we look at this text. Point number three this evening is the the conduct of Christian women. And we see here now in verse number 10 how a Christian woman should act, her action or her activity. Look at verse number 10 with me. It said, "But, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Women, you can complete your external appearance and your internal person when you practice good works. Now, I want to just pause right here and recognize that a woman's attire, number one, her attitude, number two, and her activity, number three, might be hypocrisy. And I recognize that's just the case for, that's not just the case for women. It's also the case for all of us. And there may be hypocrisy in what we profess. We profess godliness. However, on the flip side, if a Christian woman does not demonstrate good works in the church, but yet professing that godliness, her hypocrisy is equally wrong in either case. Whether you look good, but you're not, or whether you're not, but you look good. So, in either way, if there's a profession that doesn't match your practice, the hypocrisy then there is equally wrong. Here Paul is saying a a woman's good works is a complement to her profession of godliness, verse number 10. That is the conduct or the activity of the Christian woman. Number four, the concern for Christian women. Now, There is nowhere we will spend more time this evening than this part right here. The concern for Christian women, verse number 11. Let all women learn quietly with all submissiveness. Oh boy. It's not getting any easier, is it? This is so politically, right, politically incorrect. It's so politically incorrect. However, allow me to correct some misconceptions and really clarify what I think Paul is trying to say here, what he's trying to convey. Paul is not giving permission for women to learn as in, oh, well, you know, let a woman learn if if she wants to. Just don't let her say anything about it. Paul's not giving that permission. Neither is Paul requesting that women learn. Please just let, just let the women learn. Please, they can, they can learn too. See, what Paul is, what's happening here in verse 11 
is the verb is an imperative. It's an imperative. It's commanding women to be taught. It's commanding women to be taught. It's commanding women to be informed. It's commanding women to learn. Let me give you the historic context here. First century Judaism did not hold women in high esteem at all. While they were not barred from attending the synagogue, neither were they encouraged to learn. In fact, most rabbis refused, they refused to teach women and likened to it throwing pearls at pigs. That's cultural Judaism in the first century. Greek culture now wasn't much better. A commentator described the status of Greek women in society this way. He said the respectable Greek woman led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters and no one but her husband came. She didn't even appear at meals. At no time did she appear on the street alone. She never went to a public assembly at all. And even today, there are cultures that we know of, primarily in the Middle East, that discriminate against women gaining an education. They do. You see, here Paul was not a chauvinist pig suppressing women. Rather, he was upholding women's participation in learning, saying women are a part of God's program here in the church, Paul says to Timothy. Make sure they learn. Make sure they learn. I commend that they also be taught. They learn that they gain an education because they are important to the church. Allow me to pause here for a moment and comment on the value of women as illustrated in the Bible. Okay? First, the women of the Old Testament. The Mosaic Law was given to both men and women of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. Both men and women were to teach the law to their children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 7, as well as Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. The protection of the law applied equally to women, as it says in Exodus chapter 21, 28 through 31. Women had inheritance. Uh, I'm sorry, women had, both men and women participated in Jewish religious feasts, as it says in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 9 through 15. Women had inheritance rights, as it says in Numbers chapter 36, 1 through 12. The Nazarite vow, the greatest spiritual vow, was open to men and women, as it says in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 2. Women were involved in spiritual service. Exodus 38.8, Nehemiah 7.67. God dealt directly with women. Genesis chapter 3.13, Genesis 16.7-13, and Judges chapter 13 and verse 3. You see, women are not second class. They are not. Like men, they are created in the image of who? God. They're created in the image of God. Now, on the other hand, no woman have ever served as priests in the Old Testament. You won't find it. 
No woman authored Old Testament scriptures. No woman had an ongoing prophetic ministry. But they were important and valuable. That's just the Old Testament. What about the New Testament, you ask? Women in the New Testament. Well, Jesus first revealed his Messiahship to a woman. John chapter 4, verse 25 through 26. Jesus healed women, right? Mark 5, 25 through 34. Luke 13, 11 through 13. Jesus, did Jesus teach women? Yeah, he did. Jesus taught women as opposed to the practice of the rabbis. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Women ministered to Jesus and the disciples, as it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 2 through 3. Following his resurrection, Jesus first appeared to who? A woman, right? Mark 16, verse 9. John 20, verse 11 through 18. Men and women participated in prayer service of the early church together. You see, women are not second-class Christians at all. Like men, women have been fully restored to the image of God in salvation and are part of the body of Christ, the church. On the other hand, there are no women pastors. There are no women teachers, evangelists in the New Testament. No woman authored New Testament scriptures. Now I say teachers, now write teachers to men. There are obviously Sunday school teachers, right? We understand that, but there's no women teaching of men. While some women did deliver a message of truth, none had an ongoing ministry of proclamation. But perhaps you're thinking, well, pastor, doesn't the Bible say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave? As in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. We all know that, right? We know what it says. And we all know that it says male or female, for we all are one in Christ. Yes, it does say that. We are all one in Christ. There is spiritual equality in Christ. See, we are all sinners saved by grace. Male or female, it doesn't matter. But nevertheless, in function, we are still different. We're different. Our biology is different. Our wiring is different. Our roles and our responsibilities are different. We went through, this is a number of years ago, I think when we first got here, um, a video seminar, and it talked about the differences between men and women and how much there is a difference between men and women. God has made us different. Amen? Amen. In fact, I have a short list of differences here between men and women. These are generalizations, so you might find them some uh, funny, maybe not. But here they are. Here are a few differences between men and women. Men tend to be more physical. Women tend to be more verbal. That, these are generalizations, okay? Men tend to be physically stronger. Women tend to be physically softer. Men tend to be oblivious to feelings, right? Some. Women tend to be in touch with their feelings a little bit more. Men tend to be goal-oriented, right? 
we got a goal, we set a goal. Men tend to be goal-oriented. Women tend to be people or need-oriented. Men tend to, most, men tend to be logical thinkers. Women tend to be intuitive thinkers. Men tend to be eager to achieve. Women tend to be eager to belong. Men tend to be too proud to ask for help. Remember, this is just a generalization here. Just don't don't forget that. Men tend to be too proud to ask for help. Women tend to be too smart not to ask for help. (laughs) And ladies, that's okay if you say amen. That's all right. Because the silence in verse 11 does not mean that you are to be able to be mute, right? Rather, referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34, it's a point of quiet submission there in our text, there in verse number 11. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence. A command that the woman be taught because they are important. They are valuable. They matter. They are very, a very, very, very important part of the church. Amen? Amen? Just amen? Just men only, amen? Okay, okay, I got you, I got you. So, they need to be instructed. They need to be taught. They need to be educated. Verse 11 through 12, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So the role of a woman in the church, as Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, is especially, specifically to Pastor Timothy, the role of women is not one of teaching authority in the church. Now, women are certainly to teach women, right? Titus chapter 2. Women are certainly to teach children as Timothy's mother and grandmother did. But a woman's role in the church does not include teaching and authority over a man. And they are closely linked, the teaching and the authority part. Perhaps, however, in your frustrations this evening, you say, well, Pastor Craig, isn't that so old-fashioned? That's just not with our culture today. I say, I don't want to be like our culture today. Amen. <laughs> right? So often we get drugged down into the culture. What is the culture doing? What is society doing? What are they saying? What's acceptable to them? It doesn't matter. What matters is what God's Word says and what glorifies Him. This is not an easy text to preach, folks, especially for me to the women, right? But it's in God's Word. We don't shy away from it. We preach it. I remember the, the Jefferson Bible, and I've told you guys this numbers of times, right? We don't have a Jefferson Bible here where we take parts out we don't like. Uh, I'm not going to preach that. People are going to be angry. I'll just go ahead and cut that out. No, we preach the whole council here, all of God's Word. We don't listen to what society says because it's, it's not politically correct. I'm not politically correct. Amen. I'm biblically correct as I preach what God's Word says and not what society wants to hear. 
society says this is not a loving God. Why would a loving God do that? Say it's God's word. This is God's way. It's not our way. It's God's way. You might be saying, Pastor Craig, it sounds like you're over here, that male chauvinist, male-dominating position, suppressing women. I'm not. I'm just preaching God's Word and going through what Paul's writing for Timothy, for the next pastor, the guidelines of the church. And I would contend that all of this goes back to creation. It goes back to Genesis, right? And Lord willing, next week we're going to get into the end of this chapter and we're going, to, we're going to really break apart a little bit more this text and we're going to go back to Genesis and how important everyone is in the body of Christ. Everyone is important. Everyone has a role. And every role is important. Amen? I'm thankful for the Word of God. I'm thankful that we can stand on it in the midst of a culture that is, is completely opposite of this. We can stand on it and say, no, this is what I believe because this is what God said. Not what any kind of media has said or anything else like that. We stand on the Word of God. And that's what's important. And that's what counts. And that is what it's all about. Not wavering on what God's Word says because of what society says. Society doesn't like this message. There's churches that don't like this message. There's churches that just look past this text and say, oh yeah, that's not what Paul means there. That's not what it, that's not what he means. It says it right there. It says it right there. So I encourage you to continue to study out First Timothy and go till the end of chapter two as we once again next week, Lord willing, get back together and we're going to look at Genesis, where it all began. We're going to go back where it all began and, and look a little bit closer at the end of this text. Let's pray, Father. Thankful for the opportunity to be here this evening, Lord, the opportunity to look into your word, the opportunity to encourage one another. Lord, we thank you that your word is truth. Lord, we thank you that your word doesn't change in a, in a world that constantly changes. Your word is rock solid and reliable and doesn't change, and we praise you and we thank you for that. Father, I do pray for gospel opportunities this week. Lord, I pray that you would be preparing the hearts of the ones that will hear the truth of your word. And Lord, that you would soften their heart and that there would be decisions made this week to accept you as Savior. Father, I do pray for the carnival coming up on Saturday. Lord, I pray for the weather. Lord, I pray for, most importantly, the hearts of the ones that will be there, Father as they will hear the gospel message. Father, may you be glorified through all that's done on Saturday. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.